This is season two of the Sacred Commons Lectionary Musings. We're so excited that you're tuning in. We hope that you enjoy the second season that we're going to have. What's up, Dee? Hey, we're glad that we are in season two, and today we have an interesting topic we'd like to talk about. Diving into the Sermon on the Mount, that's where the lectionary is taking us. One of our favorite places in all of scripture, probably the home base for what it means to live a kingdom-centered life. Stay tuned. We're happy you're with us. So the sermon we preached, the sermon I preached on Saturday was called If I Am Crazy, and it hinged upon a quote by French Catholic social activist and co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, Peter Marin, who once said, If I am crazy, it is because I refuse to be crazy in the same way that the world has gone crazy. We're presenting Christianity as a model of nonconformity. We're presenting Christianity that's rooted in the Sermon on the Mount as a way of nonconformity. I want to read to you real quickly, and then maybe we could kick this off, D. But I want to read to you something that I thought was really good. This is from Craig Bloomberg. The upshot of the Beatitudes is a complete inversion of the attitude popularly known in our culture as machismo. In fact, this attitude is not limited to a particular culture, but characterizes humanity's self-centered pride, which invariably seeks personal security and survival above the good of others. We are enabled to invert these natural worldly values. And I think he would add to that, you know, we're, we're enabled to do it because Jesus did it. We're enabled to do it because the Spirit empowers us to do it. But the Sermon on the Mount is radically subversive, radically countercultural, radically nonconformist when you look at the values of the world. Absolutely. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it's not focused on as much as it could be or as much as it should be in the church today. I think there's a lot that Jesus taught that's hard. It's not easy. But if we want to be faithful and if we want to be Christians in the Jesus way, then it's very important that we not only know about the Sermon on the Mount, but we know what he is saying and what his desire is for the church to be. So the lectionary texts from this weekend, this past weekend, this would be the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. They all contain ideas and teachings and commands that are counter-cultural to some degree. So you have Micah, who comes along and says, God has a controversy with God's people. They're to be holy, set apart, do unique things, but they've strayed away from this. They've strayed away from God's ways. And specifically, they've neglected people. They've neglected what God desires for a just society. The prophet comes along and says, he's told you what he requires to do justice, to love kindness, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This is very counterproductive to the ways of empire, the ways of power, the ways of acquisition, the ways of control. And those are the things that the world values. Machismo, to use Craig's language, right? It's these types of things that the world really values. But Micah says God requires something else, justice and mercy. Mercy doesn't work necessarily for empire, mm-hmm. but that's what God requires. Jesus lived a life that did what Micah 6.8 was calling for. But this kind of life ends up on a cross. 
And Paul says the whole Christian way, this lifestyle centered upon the ways, the teachings of Jesus that ends up on a cross, the world doesn't understand it. And so he says the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. They see it as crazy. And then Matthew comes along in our gospel text and he builds his entire gospel off of these upside down blessings that Jesus names. The poor in spirit are blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. The meek are blessed. Jesus is basically saying, who's really well off? Well, the poor in spirit, the meek. They're the ones who should be happy. The ones who are being rejected and persecuted are the ones who are blessed in reality. Those on the underside of power. I mean, all of these texts, deed, they're just so weird. <laughs> and I think that is the theme of the lectionary text from the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. But how does this contrast to Christianity in the present form? Has Christianity become a vehicle for status quo? Have Christians become chaplains of empire? Has Christianity once again become the safe thing, right? This Constantinian idea that you see from our was that after Constantine, you know, before Constantine, it's, it's not safe to be a Christian. After Constantine, it's not safe to not be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, when everybody's a Christian, is anybody a Christian? I talked about this a few weeks ago. The, the real question is, will Christians become disciples? Mm-hmm. And he, Willard says, you can live your whole life. The Christian can live their whole life rooted in a congregation and not once become a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it's a critique, but it's, I think it's accurate. So do you think Christianity has become a vehicle for the status quo in America, at least? It's easy to just go along with whatever the empire would want of you and adapt your religion, therefore, to promote and uphold all that the empire desires. So if that's the case, then when it comes to these teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, they will be relegated to just the personal. Um, There will be no social justice implications. It would just be a a very personalized um, humility and gentle spirit. And it doesn't really mean poor. You know what I mean? So I'm thinking that when you go down that pathway, then either that you have two options, you either just skip over it altogether and you just kind of mention it briefly, or if you do spend any time on it, then you adapt it to uphold your empire uh, standards or your... Tendency. Mm-hmm. You got to unpack the word empire. I think when you use the word empire, everybody's going to think of, you know, like March of the Empire, like <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So you have, to, you have to maybe explain empire, or maybe we already did. I mean, I think that's what Craig was speaking towards. Mm-hmm. Empire would be uh, human society organizing itself around power, around a self-centered survival around pride, um, me first, America first, you know, anything like that. Um, That would be empire, acquisition, gain all you can by any means necessary. Um, And of course, when we look at, you know, other empires, it's easy for us to see how they are. It's easy for us to frame other political powers and other political movements and, and powerful groups as empire, but it's really hard for us to see how we have bought into our own version of empire, usually right. coming to us as the good, like right. like nationalism mm-hmm. 
and um, where we would use the word patriotic, you know. Yeah, we feel that we can hold our national allegiance and our allegiance to the cross both at the same time without there ever being any conflict, that these are two separate areas of my life that hold two different spheres in my mind and heart and that it's perfectly... um, that they can coexist without ever having to come into conflict with each other. And I think if we read the teachings of Jesus, if we look at his story and what happened to him, that those two worlds absolutely do come in conflict with each other. They collide all the time. And I think it's just foolishness to believe that they don't come in contact at all. And whenever we do look at how they intersect, we need to do that through the lens of Christ And we need to always have the cross first before whatever that national allegiance would be, which would be what we refer to as empire. Back in ancient times, discipleship was easy. You left everything and you followed Jesus. It's harder for us, I think, as privileged people, as Americans who, you know, we have a certain idea of what the good life looks like and... Physically, Jesus is not here in the person showing up in our at our home saying, leave it all and follow me. But mm-hmm. that's what it was for them. So we have to really work hard at uh, maybe reimagining the seriousness of Christ's call to us mm-hmm. to leave it all behind, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow, discipleship will require that you get out of your father's boat. Yeah, I take that as the things that you inherited, the perspective of nationalism that you inherited, militarism that you inherited, consumerism that you inherited. Usually we're given these ideas before we ever can craft them on our own. Mm -hmm. But I think discipleship calls all of us. You will have this moment. All of us will have this moment where we realize, oh my goodness, the teachings of Jesus somehow in some way are really convicting me to leave an idea that I once previously held, which is why I really believe that discipleship nowadays is probably, at least for modern Americans, it's probably unlearning Mm -hmm. just as much as it is learning. Like you you have Mm -hmm. to literally walk away from most of these ideas. So let's, I want to spend the, the, the second half of this getting into the Sermon on the Mount and maybe we could just deal with how radical they are. Yeah. These these teachings are, or these blessings are in the Beatitudes, because I think that's as far as we're going to get. But we start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those, in other words, who feel their spiritual need, who can assess themselves and realize that spiritually they're bankrupt. But I want to make a connection here. So Luke has a parallel part of his gospel in Luke chapter 6, where we see Beatitudes named again. And they're a little bit different, but they're very much the same. And Luke uses a more absolute use of the word poor. He does not add in spirit. He uses poor, the word literally meaning poor. This is from Craig Bloomberg. He said, no contradiction appears here between Luke and Matthew because an important strand of Jewish thought had developed, which created a close connection between poverty and piety. I've seen people fight on this. When Matthew says poor, you know, the poor in spirit, Jesus doesn't want you to literally become poor or Jesus doesn't literally lift up the poor. And they argue that there is no preferential option for the poor, which is ludicrous to me when you read the scripture, when you read Proverbs, when you read the Psalms, when you read the gospels, when you, when you read the epistle of James, if you can't see (laughs) the preferential option for the poor, I, I would wonder if you are literate. 
because it's all throughout there. And not only that, but if you know anything about the character and the teaching of Jesus, it will become obvious. Bloomberg goes on and he backs this idea up. So he connects poverty of spirit with physical poverty, saying that Jewish thought held these two closely together, that if you were poor in spirit, you probably were physically poor, connecting poverty and piety. Those who have experienced sustained economic privation, social distress, they're the ones who actually have less in their way to trust God. God is all they have. The poorer classes of society are actually the ones who seem to have strong faith. And then Jesus's own followers, of course, were from poor classes. And the word, uh, I'm going to probably mess this up, but when, when we read about those who follow Jesus, the people of the land, the word there is amha ares, and I'm probably saying that incorrectly, but that literally means the poor. So we know that Jesus's followers were mostly people from the poorer class. And then in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, we see this connection between poverty and piety. How is this countercultural to not only the world that we live in, the current climate that we live in, how is this countercultural to the church today? The pendulum has really swung in the other direction. And I, I think that one of the things about Jesus is, and about God just in general, I think that God is a God of enough. And I think the desire would be for everybody to have enough and to have clean drinking water, for everybody to have food, for everybody to have a roof over their head and clothes on their body. That's not the case in the world today. I don't think there ever was a time when that was the case in the world. So that I think would be the goal. I don't think that this means that if you're a Christian, you should have nothing and live in dire poverty. But what I do think is that people who have less and who intentionally do that and make a conscientious decision to do that, I think that that is something that is a call of followers of Christ. And if you have a lot and you're not willing to give it away and share it, then there's a word for that and that's greed. Yeah. So there's so much that goes into this and it's such a long discussion that I think you could definitely have, um, if you want to have a Bible verse showdown, it can happen here <laughs> for sure. But the heart of it, what's the heart of it? And I think that that's the most important part. And bottom line, I think people who maybe have struggled in their life a little bit here or there, or maybe have made decisions to have less, um, those are people who are open to to the Spirit of God, who are are leaning more on Him for things and who trust him more instead of themselves. When you have a lot, you don't really need God. And it's in those moments where you feel like you don't have necessarily all that you need and that you tend to reach out to God more. So I think there is something to that. Um, I definitely don't think though, that this means that everybody should be living in dire poverty. That's just yeah, not poverty, true. Poverty by itself is not a virtue, but I think our luxuries come at the cost of other people's necessities. Right. The prayer that we pray, that Christ taught us to pray, if you can't pray, give us this day our daily bread and mean it, you're probably hoarding. Hmm. If we have a lot of income, if we have a lot of money, that is not so that we can store up treasures on earth mm -hmm. and build up our warehouse. 
That is so we can have it go outward. I'm thankful for rich people. I am like, uh, to be honest with you, I'm thankful for the rich people who I've seen steward their wealth in a gracious way and they don't hold on to it. Mm -hmm. It flows through them to other people. God has gifted them with an idea or a business or a skill. Financially, they've been prosperous, Mm -hmm. but they use that money to lift other people up. Paul tells Timothy this. I think he says something along the lines of encourage those who are rich among you to basically be a blessing to poor people, Mm -hmm. to use what you have for other folks. I think it gets complicated when we bring up issues of, well, how much is enough? And uh, should we have, you know, stocks and bonds and big bank accounts? Should we have endowments? And, you know, what are we doing with this money? I also think it's an issue of fear. How much are you willing to let go of and sow into other people and willing to um, use for the good of somebody else instead of yourself? How much are you willing to let go of? And I think fear holds us back a lot of times from being willing to do that. Um, But yeah, I think that this issue is a big issue and it's not necessarily um, one that everyone's going to agree on every part, but I think we can all agree on the heart of what Jesus was talking about, hopefully. And, and that is that there is definitely a special spot in the heart of God for people who are poor. Yeah. I, I think he has a preferential option for the poor. I think he prioritizes the poor and instead of like explaining it in such a way that makes us all feel comfortable, I think it's good to leave it as uncomfortable. Okay. And because when you, you continue through the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he says, uh, poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. When you look at the context here, when he talks about those who mourn, it, it's connected directly to the same idea in Luke chapter six, right? Those who weep. Mm-hmm. And in 621 of Luke's gospel, it says, blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled. So there's a blessing towards the people who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Then he says in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. And so I don't think these blessings are disconnected. Poor, poor Mm -hmm. in spirit, mourn. We know that the people who were mourning, their mourning was caused by both personal sin, but in the context of what Christ is saying here, it's also those who mourn because of social evil and oppression. Yeah. So this is directly connected to justice, right? Mm-hmm. We, we have to always remember that the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus preached and he lived what he preached and what he preached fulfilled the command we see in Micah 6, 8 mm-hmm. to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And speaking of... Yeah. Continuing that, right? Walking humbly, blessed are the meek. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was no more valued than it is in our world today. You know, inheriting the earth as a future compensation. I think what Jesus is pointing towards and connecting this all together is that the meek are those who specifically lack earthly possessions. They're going to actually inherit the earth, but it sets in contrast the fact that they don't have any inheritance right now. Mm -hmm. The poor people in Israel, for example, they didn't own their own land. This is what made it ironic. He's speaking to poor people who have inherited Jack. Like they, they don't have any inheritance. They didn't own their own land. They were oftentimes under the oppression of 
wicked landlords who would exploit them. And so you see James pick this theme up in James chapter five and he says, come now you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. You've lived lives of luxury in the earth. You've lived a life of pleasure. You have condemned and murdered people who were doing right. He goes on just, it's a harsh critique in that chapter against the rich. But what we're trying to do is show the consistent thread here that the meek were specifically the ones who did not have any possessions, Mm -hmm. no inheritance. And then he keeps going. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke's hunger is the hunger that the poor people would have, right? Righteousness meaning who's going to set this all right? Mm -hmm. We're being exploited. Their basic needs were being denied. The ones who had it all didn't care about the ones who had nothing. And the ones who had nothing were the ones hungering for righteousness, for people to do what's right, Mm -hmm. for God's standards, right? This is the vision of, of, this is God's dream. It's always been God's dream. A just and worshipful society, people who did justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly with God. There's the worship aspect Mm -hmm. of it. And the people who have lived a life that was void of a society that did these things know what it's like to hunger for righteousness. Righteousness is justice. The ones who had no hunger for justice were the ones who were reaping the benefits of living in an unjust system. Right, as they are today, I think. Exactly. So I think we have watered down these beatitudes, these blessings, and we've turned it into lovely virtues that we aspire towards instead of recognizing, no, these are just the qualifiers that Jesus is recognizing for the good life, for those who are well off. It's actually better to be in this state. Maybe we all will not embody these beatitudes equally, But Jesus is saying, this is what the good life is. These are the people who should be happy. These are the people who should celebrate, which is counterintuitive. We look through the lens of, oh, you're doing well? Wow, I bet you're really happy. Like you have a big house, you have many cars, you have a large income, multiple vacations, or you don't have to work. (laughs) You're living off of old money, deep pockets. And we say, oh man, I bet you they're so happy. Jesus is like, no, that's not the way the kingdom works. Mm -hmm. That's not the good life, right? Christian hope doesn't see that as embodying the the good life. So hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, merciful, blessed are the merciful. The word there is Allah Iman, and it means concerned about other people in their need. Blessed are those who are actually concerned about the needs of other people who are merciful, sympathetic, compassionate, Blessed are those who embrace the characteristics of being generous and forgiving. And the link between God's mercy and our mercy, between our mercy and God's mercy, is anticipated in chapter 6, verse 12. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then later on we read, he says, if you forgive others, then you'll be forgiven by the Father. But if you don't forgive others, then you're not going to be forgiven. So mercy, caring about other people, having a heart of compassion is literally, I think, in the DNA of people who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. But we don't necessarily see that. When I see Christians who at their worst celebrate, but marginally tolerate children, being put in cages. 
when I see Christians saying America first and not realizing that they have brothers and sisters in the global community, when I see people flying over a mission field to go to a mission field, especially in a city like Youngstown, Ohio, where we have some of the highest distress scores in the nation, Mm -hmm. when infant mortality is the highest, we're literally, I think, four or five away from the top in this country. But I see them fly over a mission field to go to a mission field because Mm -hmm. it's easier for that it's easier on their consciousness for that than to realize what they're ignoring in their backyard Mm -hmm. every single day. I mean, mercy calls to us, but it's really almost like a rebuke, I feel, towards Mm -hmm. our culture right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's why it's easier to just make this all be like personal. Mm -hmm. So just me as a Christian in my daily life with other Christians or other just people in my workplace or it's easier to just make this be a personal thing because then we don't have to think about all those justice issues that are going on in our society, in our country, in our world. And we just try and disconnect that and make that its own separate thing. Yeah. But we can't do that because it is all connected. Yeah. And, and I, you bring up a good point. You know, if someone said, well, don't you think that mercy is personal? I would say it's personal and public. Mm-hmm. I think it has to come from the inside out, but it has to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has to originate, of course, from the inside. Like if you're merciful to strangers, but not towards your husband mm-hmm. or your right. wife. It has to be both. Your son, your daughter, you know, your yeah. your friends and family, those in your intimate community. Then, yeah, I mean, you're just clanging brass. Mm-hmm. It's just noise. Mm-hmm. So it has to come from a deep place. Then the peacemakers, these are those who work for shalom, the wholeness and harmony of the community, the wholeness and harmony of the neighborhood. Those who reconcile others to God and those who reconcile others to each other, they're the ones who will be called children of God. In other words, that's the paternity test of your faith, I think. Mm-hmm. Ironically, we say this while the church remains probably the most divided body in the world. We could do a podcast on every single one of these. Yeah, <laughs> That's like the hard part. I'm thinking about how Martin Luther King, you know, he stated a reality that it's still true. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many years later? Yep. 1968, yeah. 67, when did he say it? The most segregated hour in America is Sunday at, at 11 o'clock or 10 mm-hmm. o'clock. I mean, and it's still a real occurrence. It's still a reality Mm -hmm. today. So when we talk about peacemaking, I think reconciliation needs to start even among Christian bodies, which is why we believe so strongly in the ecumenical movements Mm -hmm. of the faith. The thing that I think is interesting too about blessed are the peacemakers is that a lot of times people hold this in tension with Jesus saying in Matthew 10, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he talks about dividing familial lines and something that I thought was really good that Craig wrote. He said, this text reminds us that attempts at peacemaking in this age are often thwarted, but this gives us no excuse to become warmongers. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is a great point because a lot of times what people what they will do is they'll render the work of peacemaking as pointless and then they'll go the other direction, right? Like, oh, Jesus couldn't have meant that. He couldn't have meant that we're supposed to be radical peacemakers 
I heard a statistic that 222 out of 239 years, basically 93% of the time, America has been at war. We do not even have a clue on how much this has affected us, our psychology, our conditioning. War is normal. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything other than war. And when you question it, people think you're crazy. Yeah, it's always going on in the background. And it not only has it been normalized, it's been glorified. Right. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And then later on in his sermon, we're not going to get there today. He talks about what you do with enemies, how you handle enemies. What do you do with persecution? It doesn't make sense. So if you're looking for a form of of secular pragmatism, you know, this isn't for you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but this is how kingdom comes. We recognize that this is completely countercultural. This is completely nonconformist. And we believe that the faith once delivered is foolish to some folks. They see it that way. But for us, it's life. I I don't think we can get um, overcome by, or I don't think that we can see it as unattainable or impossible. Peace is possible. It was possible for 7% of the time. So we should work towards <laughs> making it possible for more than 7% like a, of the time. It's <laughs> like someone failed 93% of the test. Well, look at the 7% that you didn't fail. Always well, look on the bright. Well, no, I think I think it speaks to, um, I think we just missed it, but the even the pure in heart. Is, is it possible to ever really be pure? Well, let's go there because I think we skipped it, but we can address it now. So blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? Something that I think is really helpful that Blomberg wrote is that purity in heart refers to moral uprightness and not just ritual cleanliness. So that's an important distinction. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that this is a lifestyle that Jesus lived that is characterized by people following after Jesus. The pure in heart, you could look at it this way. Truly authentic folks. Not perfect. Mm -hmm. But always striving to live authentically in the way of Christ. Genuine people Mm -hmm. that are trying. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily executing perfection every time. But people who are genuinely trying, mm -hmm. who are single-minded in their devotion, that they have gone through this sort of internal cleansing created simply by following Christ. So, and we call that holiness. Holiness not in the holier than thou, you know, external behavior modification sort of thing, but holiness in the aspect of holiness in terms of a life lived after Jesus trying to follow Christ, but it's occurring without conscious thought. That's the term that we always use. Like this is just the natural outcome, not an effort, not something that you're trying to do. And the motive matters. If you're, if you're only doing it for the motive of I want people to think this good thing about me, so I'm going to do good stuff so people see me a certain way. That's not with a pure heart. That's doing good things so that you get some sort of recognition out of it. And I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think without conscious thought that you said, that that's it. That's It's been so ingrained as part of who you are that that is the outcome that happens in situations. Mm -hmm. It just comes naturally. Now we arrive to verse 10. And 10 and 11 are probably, Mm -hmm. um, they'll bring us back home. 
to the original point, right? So blessed are those who are persecuted for Mm -hmm. righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before Mm -hmm. you. Once again, returning back to this point that we will be maladjusted if we live this way, if we follow Jesus into a lifestyle that mirrors his life to the best of our mm-hmm. ability, not even the best of our ability, but as the spirit gives us grace to do it, mm-hmm. then we can expect certain outcomes. And that would be the outcome of a maladjusted life. I think in Jesus's day, this meant martyrdom for people. Yeah, I, I think, think means- persecution then a lot of times ended up in martyrdom for us. Now we may not end up in martyrdom, but there will be, um, uh, you are doing something subversive to this current culture as a result of following Christ. Whatever the outcome is culturally, for you being a nonconformist, not conforming to the norm, whatever the maximum outcome that the culture is cool with at the time will be the outcome for you. Paul was persecuted. Peter was persecuted. The disciples were persecuted. They all came to some sort of end that wasn't desirable, maybe. They all had outcomes that led to persecution, that led to people saying evil things against them. And of course, Jesus is the epitome of this. He Mm -hmm. lived out the sermon. He lived out all of these things we're reading about in the Beatitudes. And where did it place him in the end other than a cross? So all of these things will be the outcome that stem from allegiance to Jesus and living in nonconformist ways. And I think the reason why he says you can rejoice in this is because this life is just a fraction of eternity, right? This life is just a sliver of time in light of eternity. And, you know, there is this sort of Christian eschatological hope in the end that those people who overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of the mm-hmm. testimony, that God is not done being God to them yet. Mm-hmm. And that the goodness of God will be manifested, even if it ended in a way that we might look at and say, well, that's not good. That's not just, um, but that his justice and his goodness is coming. Mm-hmm. So all of these things point to the maladjusted life. And we, we get this term, the maladjusted life from Dr. Martin Luther King. And I thought we could finish by reading a quote from Dr. King, which really speaks to what we're talking about. You know, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, when you look at the Beatitudes, it seems upside down when you compare it to the values of the world. Mm -hmm. It seems inverted. Because of that, people will call you crazy. Uh, I've even seen this happen amongst Christians when certain Christians hold up the sermon and other Christians want to view it as just a lovely list that doesn't really apply to them, but it's more like a list of sentimental values, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. You have one sector of the church saying, no, this is what we're called to live into. The other saying, no, that was more for Jesus. And they locate it in history and they say, we live in a different reality. That's not for us. Oftentimes, those folks will look at Christians who are trying to live into the Sermon on the Mount and they'll say, that is so impractical. That is so crazy. In an era of, you know, nuclear war, in an era of corruption and deception and they'll throw all these things in your way mm-hmm. what do you, you have kids what are you gonna do you know like what if someone broke into your house they always go to these but hypotheticals. Every, everybody wants 
verse 12, they all want that reward when they get to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily theologically complicated. It's just demanding. <laughs> it's more, the weight of it is, oh my goodness, he's calling us to live into this. And you know what? Even if there are people out there who may not agree with how we are viewing the Beatitudes, let's at least think about it and talk about it. Because I think taking the time to read it, to think about it, and let the Holy Spirit convict our heart on what this means. We don't have to come to all the answers today, but I think it's healthy to at least be thinking about these things and be talking about it. Be bothered by it. Be bothered by it. Be uncomfortable. All those people, when they... When they sat down and they started listening to Jesus, they were probably like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it can't just be difficult for us today. It had to have always been difficult. Yeah. So anyway, on that note, we started with the Beatitudes today in the Sermon on the Mount, and we still have salt and light coming up. So I'm excited about that. That'll be in our next podcast. Let's finish with this quote from Dr. King. It's about being maladjusted. I say to you, my friends, there are certain things in our nation and in the world about which which I am proud to be be maladjusted, maladjusted. which I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted until the good societies realize. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. And I say to you that I am absolutely convinced that maybe the world is in need for the formation of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. And through such maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. So going back to the quote from Peter Marin, if you are crazy, if we are crazy, if I am crazy, if we're maladjusted, it's because we refuse to be adjusted. It's because we refuse to be crazy mm-hmm. in the same way the world has gone crazy. And what would make us nonconformists? Well, the fact that we follow a savior, I think, who was a nonconformist, who taught a radical sermon that calls his followers to a different place. Mm-hmm. And even if that place you know, for him, led to a cross. And to quote Paul from the lectionary this week, even if the world sees the message of the cross as foolishness, to us, why are we following this nonconformist, radical, first century Palestinian Jew? Because we see that as the only way that leads to the good, that leads to, to life, yeah. that leads to God's reality, God's dream. So let us all be crazy. Let us all be maladjusted. And may God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.